If you haven't seen The Batman yet and you'd like to watch it without two giant men spoiling it for you, we recommend skipping the first five minutes of this episode. Welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, what did you think of The Batman, the film starring Robert Pattinson? I thought it was good, but just good. <laughs> you big into um, Batman fighting in cells in a flooding sports <laughs> arena or whatever the fuck was going on at the end of that film? Suddenly felt like it needed this big action beat where it had been quite low-key. Like it didn't really know how to finish a low-key Batman story in a low-key yeah. way. So when it changed, it, it was a bit daft. Also, arguably, the villain one in that film, despite what the film may tell you i think he caused <laughs> enough damage for it to be like one nil to him <laughs> <laughs> yeah like um mild spoiler alert here so skip ahead if you've not seen it yet but um that guy does do a lot of damage to that city um like so much damage like millions worth of damage it's not like in um batman begins where um you know bruce wayne manages to stop the train with Ra's al Ghul in it all he really does is destroy a train network and it's fine here it's like yeah that city's a bit fucked so did you win Batman I mean what are we all doing here really but uh hey yeah <laughs> I must admit I, I I was quite disappointed by it I've not been too vocal about it on social media because I get the impression everyone loves it except for me I only really love how it looks but I think it's a Batman story it feels fairly familiar I like the Riddler stuff but then they forget about it for most of our two and then mm. um, the Riddler's motivation, that film is just stupid. They couldn't think of anything um, anything good for, for him to, to actually um, be motivated by. So that was disappointing. But do you have any more detailed thoughts on those subjects, Matthew? I found it very long and very slow. And there were too many scenes of Batman and Gordon whispering to each other. And they right. both had quite hushed, gruff voices. So those scenes, sonically, were not very interesting <laughs> to listen to. You know, a lot of people have said, well, you know, this is this is the one which kind of does it as a detective film. And that's true. But unfortunately, that drags it into the realms of detective stories of which I'm quite into and quite hot on. And I just found the whole kind of plot and the whole conspiracy quite, quite boring and obvious. Like if yeah. you've read any kind of sort of hardboiled crime novel, it just seems so tropey. And maybe you're like, well, it's a good detective film for a Batman for, for a Batman story. And you're like, yeah, maybe. But I've got a pretty, pretty exacting standards in that particular genre. So um, on the kind of like uh, ranking of Matthew Castle's favorite mysteries, this is below Danganronpa, right? It's just, uh... <laughs> it ain't no Danganronpa. It's not even <laughs> Apollo Justice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. What is about better than Miles Edgeworth? <laughs> Oh, amazing. That's what our listeners are really here for. They're, um, they were like, they were kind of dozing off at our Batman chat, but now they've all perked up because the visual novels chat has come out. Yeah. Oh, so we're going to do a granular stuff. Batman Ace Attorney ranking. <laughs> it must have been. Some people afterwards were asking me, oh, Samuel, what are some good, like, um, detective based graphic novels of Batman? And the truth is, even though he is called the world's greatest detective, he doesn't do that much detecting. A lot of Batman stories are mostly him being a sort of action hero with themed villains, I would say. Um, And less about, like, the actual act of detecting things. Like, um, The Long Halloween is probably the most famous one. Because it's got, like, a a year-long mystery. And a good good resolution. 
But um, I don't know, if you look at a lot of... Uh, Hush is another one that's got um, got a kind of mystery at, at its core. But if you look at most of them, they're kind of just like him going from A to B and sort of doing stuff. Those are the Batman stories. He's not really... They're not really famed for being amazing detective stories, I would say, the Batman right. comics, even the best ones. So, um, yeah, that's Sam, Big Sammy's big take on, um, on Batman nice. as a detective. And it's an one. exclusive podcast take. We haven't really <laughs> heard that yet out in the Twitter worlds yet. No, that's content I've reserved um, specifically for you, the listeners. Um, mostly because my takes on the Batman will be so unpopular on social media, they can't really be aired. I'm like... <laughs> I think this is a borderline two-star film. And everyone's like, absolutely go to hell. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So I could just keep keep it on here where I feel like I'm on safer ground. So Matthew, we made it to episode 70, the big 7-0. Go us. That's what you put in your podcast plan here. Um, and I agree, 70 episodes is a lot, isn't it? Hell of a lot. So this episode is a what we've been playing episode. We said we do these more regularly this year. That's partly to allow us the space to do um, more stuff with Patreon. But also people enjoy these episodes. They always do well. We tend to do them when we've got a big game to talk about, and that is exactly what we have this week. Matthew has been playing Ghostwire Tokyo, which I think is out the day that this podcast goes live. So, like Dying Light 2, we've got some um, nice kind of chunky impressions of that. <laughs> chunky impressions. This is uh, the kind of uh, gold they used to put on the PC Gamer covers. Um, and uh, <laughs> and um, we've got a bunch of other stuff to talk about too. I've been playing Tunic, um, the uh, new Zelda slash Dark Souls kind of like game, where you play a little fox lad. Um, that dropped on Game Pass day one. That was like a kind of like a, a launch that came out of nowhere this week. Surprise launch, very exciting. So I'll talk about that. And then we've got some other cool bits too. Um, Matthew's also got the new Kirby game to discuss, Kirby in the Forgotten Land. So Matthew, why don't we start with Ghostwire Tokyo? What's what's the deal? Because in the background, you've been saying to me this is kind of a 7 out of 10. Obviously, we're big Mikami heads on this podcast why is it like? Why is it not kind of like landed for you like as as much as maybe you hoped? I think the main thing is that this is Tango GameWorks' um, first properly open world game, and that's quite a different place for this studio to be working in. And the thing I think you have to be careful with is not just attributing everything in this game to Mikami, because I think the messaging around this game has been this is the new generation, or this is Mikami saying, you know, I I wanted. A, a younger generation of directors to really kind of take the reins on this, and I've sort of stepped aside in in many ways. He talked about that in the Archipel documentary. That's been the kind of messaging through a lot of the big previews and interviews I've read. You know, they've really pushed the the. I am terrible. I've completely forgotten the, the director's name, but they've really pushed him to the fore as like the spokesperson for it. And so I don't think they want you to to kind of necessarily be putting it in with the other Mikami games which is probably the right thing to do because it is very different because I'd say the defining feature of those Mikami games is that he is a master of pacing. You know, he builds these incredible rides and he kind of rips you through them and he largely does that by playing in a linear space and that's that's kind of what he is the master of. So this is, this is not a form he has, like, proven himself in. You know, the top line is I think it's an open-world game that, doesn't ever really justify itself as an open world game it's the classic problem of big gorgeous interesting map but just not a lot of interesting activities to put in it in fact the game is at its best in linear sections when you go into like interiors and 
there's like weird stuff happening and they can play with the art and they can kind of control the experience a bit more and do more sort of um sort of hallucinatory moments where floors are flipping and weird spooky stuff's happening and it it, it can't really control the city in the same way like i suppose to dig into to, to one thing i was kind of curious about is what what is your what are you doing moment to moment in this because the combat sort of looked like you were doing spell style stuff against kind of like ghostly figures um around this quite authentic looking tokyo setting um yeah is that kind of what it is they're kind of bioshocky powers that's what i kind of got the sense of they're a little bit like the powers in bioshock what's weird about the combat is you only really have three attacks for the duration of the game and you get them probably in the first couple of hours so you have like a wind attack, a fire attack, and a water attack. And the combat is its about lots of enemies basically swarming you from every angle. And you're trying to kind of crowd control using these three uh, different moves you have. They run out quite quickly. So to kind of regenerate them, you have to kind of pull cores from the ghosts. But you sort of whittle them down, expose their core, and then pull it out. And that kills them for good and gives you a few bullets back. So it's got a little bit of the kind of uh, the new Doom kind of ammo control as well, where right. you've got to you've got to play quite aggressively to kind of fuel your ammo and keep yourself going. Like, it's quite easy, especially early on, to sort of botch it and, and panic and r- basically run out of ammo and then be kind of scrabbling around trying to get ammo from wherever. So it's quite up close and personal for a projectile-based game. It's never a survival element. You're never that pushed for ammo that you're kind of, like, scared. But there is a, a sort of slight panicked element to it. It's not just a you know you're ripping through stuff with amazing machine guns it's it's a it, it's trying to keep you in a place where where you're a bit more on edge which is a mccarney's trope like i wouldn't actually say it's as combat heavy as like some of the things they've shown off it's quite easy to kill monsters in an area and then that area will feel pretty chill and relaxed for like 10 15 minutes and you can have long stretches where you are just exploring and that's the other half of the game which is quite weird where there's basically 240,000 souls to collect in this city. That collectathon is kind of the meat of the game. Because of that, it it has this very, like, sedate sort of exploration side to it, which I don't think any of the promotion really captures. Hmm, interesting. I do um, like the point you made earlier about how this is, like, the next generation, um, you know, of Mikami's kind of, like, disciples, essentially. His Mm. kind of, like, you know, who he's been... Um, working with at Tango Games Gameworks and like the um, marketing materials did a really good job of leading into that when they did that state of play it had a really interesting kind of character for him going around interviewing the, his team um, kind of thing um, yeah. so it doesn't surprise me too much that the game is quite a radical departure from stuff they've made in the past what I would ask is even though you say it doesn't quite justify being an open world game do you think that the open world is at least superficially nice as a giant weeb man who likes japan stuff if you've been to tokyo or you've wanted to go to tokyo and if you love exploring the yakuza games and just soaking up that atmosphere it ticks a lot of those same boxes i mean it's like a weird version of tokyo because everyone's dead obviously or everyone's been like vanished and turned into a ghost at the start that isn't a spoiler that happens right at the start of the game so it's like if a yakuza map you literally like removed all the npcs that's kind of the vibe of it but it still sounds right because it's sort of set um like moments after this vanishing so it's a bit like the leftovers if you've ever seen that that's a show about 
a load of people who basically get raptured. And it has these awesome scenes where suddenly people go and there's like a dog on a leash running away or like a car's crashed because the driver's vanished. It has kind of big leftovers energy. Right. <laughs> without all the weird, sad, sad cop stuff. Um, sorry, sorry, but Matthew, big leftovers energy is like way beyond parody even for us. Like big <laughs> leftovers energy as a statement on this podcast. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> Um, sorry, please carry on. <laughs> no, but that that's the side of the game I like the most. All the shops you walk by, you can kind of hear the music piping out of them. Like, they've still got their sound systems playing, so there's still, like, jazz coming out of the, the cool-looking cafes and mm. thumping kind of J-pop coming out of, you know, clubs and there are convenience stores with music and stuff. So it, despite being completely devoid of life there's this quite interesting echo of life in it which i think is like probably the game's biggest success you know it sort of starts in shibuya scramble like the most iconic kind of probably like cliched place you could possibly start which means it then pushes into like areas you don't know as well with some quite weird stuff like it gets actually gets into sort of suburbs quite a bit which i really liked because they're you suddenly shift from all these skyscrapers to very like low roofs and like gardens and it's got a, it's got a very different vibe there and you know if you watch a lot of like domestic like dramas set in Japan it's quite nice to be able to explore those kind of locations too for once hmm. um things which would probably be a bit too boring for a yakuza game you know there's a there's a, like a region which is um based on i think they were like post war dormitories they built but they're, they've they've got, like, an extremely cursed energy. Like, I think they're abandoned now. They're the kind of things that, you know, you get those websites that are dedicated to exploring abandoned buildings, and they yeah. kind of go in, and they're all, like, being reclaimed by nature and all that kind of stuff. There's a sort of region built on these sort of famously abandoned, sort of cursed dormitories, which really fits the kind of spooky kind of urban legend direction they're kind of taking in the, the game. Like, it feels, like, super authentic. You know, if if any part of this game is a triumph, it's that. Hmm. Interesting. I really flip flop on it. At the time of doing this, I haven't written my final review. Yeah. Some of it really speaks to me, like that city stuff. But I'm also just sort of surprised that something associated with Mikami is so kind of loose in a way. It does also sound like, even though you know you have you said on last week's episode, I think that you compared it to something like Far Cry. It doesn't sound like there's exactly an open world type of game that this matches. Like, it still sounds like, even if you just take the choice of setting and kind of like the choice of enemies, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, sort yeah. of by, by the numbers, it, it, by the numbers in always, you know what I mean? There are a lot of side activities that are repeated that are very bad, I would say. Like, there's, but they're dressed up as like interesting ghosts, but they're actually quite dull so for example there's this like fox demon and they're like well you know this fox demon when you meet it it will like try and escape and it's basically just chasing like a pet you know those floating pages in assassin's creed you just chase this fox demon for like 20 meters and then you catch it or they're like oh there's this there's this aerial ghost that you can never catch and it's just a ghost that you chase across rooftops for like 20 seconds the, the, the actual side activity is some of the most boring I've played in an open world game. There is an art to filling a map with crap. The crap in this game has this like ghost skin on it, but it's it's really really underwhelming to the point where you're like, oh, what is that thing? Oh, it's you know, it's the bit where I talk to a ghost in a tree and then a load of people attack and I have to defend the tree against three waves and you do that like in ten different places. Or it's the the bit where it's the ghost with the long neck and I have to chase its weird head around the buildings and you know when you say like 
oh, there's a ghost with a long neck and you have to chase its snaking neck. You're like, oh, that sounds interesting. But actually in the doing, it is just, you know, you're just following a, a map marker, basically. It's, it, that, that stuff feels quite underpowered. What about the story itself then and these more sculpted kind of like side missions? Like what, does that stuff feel a bit less kind of like familiar? I wouldn't say Mikami's games are necessary. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say any of them story is the strong point. Like, even Resident Evil 4, it's just a naff thing to kind of enable a lot of action to happen. I couldn't even tell you some of the characters' names. They're, they're really, like, underwritten, badly written, flat. Like, I d- that, that did nothing for me. The side missions, they're set up really well, because each one is like a ghost. It's like I say, it's based on this, like, anecdotal stuff. So they're like, um, you know, there's a house where you know at night people hear piano music coming out of it and you're like oh that's interesting and, and so you're look you're listening out for a house that plays piano music and you start hearing like the eerie strains of like moonlight sonata and you, you go into the house and there's no one in there and you're kind of creeping around and the setup for them you're always like oh i'm going to find an interesting ghost but then i would say 9 times out of 10 the side missions end with like a fight against one of the regular enemy types like there are there are very few bespoke monsters and bespoke ghosts which i actually found quite disappointing because they're like oh the legend is there's this particular demon that lives in the that lives in the bathhouse and you're like oh is it gonna be some kind of water demon or whatever and it just sort of whisks you to a self-contained arena and then you just fight waves of the regular enemies you're like oh you got me all excited it gets you excited over and over again for not a lot which is the problem with the side stuff. Um, but the framing's good. Like, it gets you excited, but but then by the end, you know not to get too excited. You're like, oh, all right, well, this is going to be... This is either going to be a wave of small enemies or you're going to make me fight, like, one of the boss characters as a mini-boss again, and it's not going to really resemble the thing you promised. Like, one thing The Evil Within 2 did really well is in its side missions, they had lots of, like, bespoke, horrible things. So it felt as premium and and as exciting, like, as the main game. Like, there was a... Re- the reason to find everything there was just because it was all of such a high quality. Where here, it's not quite the same. Right, okay, yeah. Interesting. Sorry, um, I feel like I'm just shitting on Tokyo Ghostwire. <laughs> Ghostwire Tokyo, Matthew, the other way around. There are, like, a couple of moments where it does tap into that that weird like spooky magic you know there's like these big kind of ghostly parades which appear in Shibuya's scramble and like march through and you can either kind of go and fight a load of them or you can just watch it and it's it's genuinely very like spooky and otherworldly when it happens or there's this um there's one enemy type that when they appear they make like all the road markings like detached from the road like paper all right they sort of ripple. So you're walking down the street and then all of a sudden, like all the white, you know, the double yellow lines start rippling and you're like, oh, what's going on? If the whole open world had been like this, like an open world that's just constantly misbehaving and all this like weird stuff is happening the whole time, this could be like genuinely amazing. But you only really remember those moments because they happen so, so few and far between that you can kind of go, these were the five cool things that happened in an open world. Well, those are my la- that was my last question for you on this one, Matthew, which was, um, is this a scary game? Because it's hard to tell from the trailers because it's so action-oriented. I was wondering, yeah. you know, how, how scary does it get? I was saying at times, like, it's almost closest to, like, Luigi's Mansion because <laughs> the ghosts are quite cartoonish. You know, they're, like salary men with umbrellas and school little schoolgirls with no heads and 
there are a couple of things there are a couple of enemy time types like the first time they turn up you're like ah this is horrible like this is lady with big scissors which is a bit full-on but even that like after a few times you're like well you know that's the thing i i save my rocket you know grenade energy for and i just fire like five grenades into its face and then that's jobs are good and <laughs> maybe for like a younger gamer it might be a good gateway into like spookier games you know i actually have a feeling this could be their most successful game ever it's a lot more accessible like both on difficulty fronts and in terms of tone than the evil within because the evil within i'd say is quite hard, quite hard going as a you know tonally it's it's pretty full-on and nasty where this is like not that at all this feels like a, an attempt to make something a lot more mainstream than the evil within yeah it's fine it's interesting i tell you what bethesda games always come down in the sales this will be a brilliant 20 pound purchase or wait for it on game pass when it comes out on xbox in like a year or whenever it is <laughs> okay well um, if you're a teenager you might find this scary i don't goodbye matthew castle um yeah very good um Okay, cool. So, yeah, I I'm, I'm definitely still want to play it because it's just, you know, it's a blockbuster I can play on my PS5. It looks like the setting alone does make me interested for sure. And yeah. um I imagine I imagine me and my partner will be able to play this past the pad quite nicely. Oh, it should yeah. be yeah, should be good for that. So Yeah, it's it's there's, there's so like little going on. It's quite easy to pick up. It's not a game you you'd ever like lose yourself in either, you know. And maybe that's a plus point that you could probably see like everything it has in about 25 hours. Okay. That's Which good, for yeah. an open world game is quite it's quite pacey. That's good. Well, it should be scarier than uh, the last game we played together, which is Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. So, um, oh, it's definitely scarier than that. That's good. That's reassuring. Um, okay, <laughs> good. Um, so, uh, I'll guess I'll talk about my first game then, Matthew, which is um, Tunic. So, uh, I played. I started playing this on Thursday night. I intended to play one hour of it um, and then move on to playing um, another game. And I instead played it for four hours in a row. Um, it took up my entire Ooh. night. And then I played another hour of it last night. Um, but I was far too tired to do the dodge roll properly and threw a tantrum and turned it off. So I played it for five <laughs> hours, basically. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so as explained, it's this fingy published game about this little fox dude. It's best described as a mix of Zelda and Dark Souls, slightly more of a leaning towards the Zelda side. It's kind of like a 2D Zelda, I should say, more specifically. Um, isometric kind of um, point of view you uh, kind of wake up on the the coast of this this place and then um, a very Zelda like locale and then you kind of make your way inland you have no weapons or anything so you find a stick you pick that up and it does a moderate amount of damage to enemies so you can just about fend for yourself and then you um, you know you basically just then spend about 25 minutes trying to get hold of a sword which is a fraught activity and it's about <laughs> figuring out when do you take on an enemy when do you run away that sort of thing that's where it becomes a bit more dark soulsy because um you're always a little bit underpowered in this game um instead oh. of the old fires in dark souls or whatever they're called in elden ring you just um you go to these kind of fox statues where there's like a a little flame and um those are your kind of like respawn points and once enemies are dead on one run they won't come back but then when you respawn they do come back so very pervasive dark soulsy thing and you lose a little bit of currency when you die not too much but um it gives you another reason to go find your your body basically and um retrieve the stuff that you lost so mm. it's it's interesting because um I kind of wondered if there was much more that like a 2D style Zelda game I thought I could even kind of get out of it these days, but it's so beautifully done. Like it looks amazing. This kind of diorama y 3D art style 
kind of looks like it was just sort of made out of like uh, you know made a sort of a by an animation studio or something you know like, like an ardmany thing right. you could see it being made in real life basically and um, out of kind of like real life materials so it just looks fantastic i i would say that like the real magic of this game is not the kind of riffs on familiar things like zelda and dark souls it's about how information is passed to you as a player and i say this because it's quite opaque a bit like how Elden Ring is opaque, but the way it gives information to you is throughout the world, you'll find these pages of what are basically the instruction manual for the game. And this is designed to kind of riff on old SNES and NES kind of Japanese manuals um, for games. Right. Like there's little illustrations in them, little button prompts, but there's a load of text in them that you don't understand because it's the, it's the in-world language of the game. Um, so you don't actually know what the text says all the time. Mm. And it gives you kind of visual hints. Some bits, it has some bits of English. It has some illustrations. It'll give you enough to kind of go on. And you basically don't have like an in-game map or anything like that. You have to use all the information gathered in this manual in order to figure out where to go next and what to do. Or you just do it through blind exploration, which is can be quite tricky. So... I think that's a really interesting design choice. It's mm. um, it makes like discovery just so uh, so so exciting. Do you translate the instruction manual? So I don't know if you do. Right. It gives you scraps of English. Like there are definitely times where you understand what it is it's telling you to do. It'll be like um, this. Um, it'll give you like one map of the location you're in now and say this path goes to East Forest or this path goes to West West Forest. Um, and it'll it, it'll give you enough to kind of go on. But I don't. So far, at least, there are like big passages of it I haven't translated. Right, okay. It's quite interesting how it does that. Was this on your radar much, Matthew? I played the demo of it. I don't think any of that instruction manual thing was in it. I thought it seemed surprisingly difficult. Like, I don't think I had a read on it being a bit, a little bit Dark Soulsy back then and was sort of surprised by how much it kind of kicked my ass and threw me back. I, so, yeah, but it felt more like a vertical slice than, say, the, the finished game because like this stuff you're saying about this sort of like hidden hidden kind of code to the world or whatever none of that was in it i don't think and that sounds super interesting yeah there's one achievement i unlocked where i did something really hyper specific in the game and the achievement said um you understood the left hand column in page 16 of the manual and like that was obviously there was something that they were alluding to that you as a player had to figure out and I'd actually just done it by chance, but that's an example of like something where there's an example of how the in-game manual connects to the actual game world and the experience of playing through the game world. It's a really interesting approach versus you know telling people what to do all the time. And I feel like I wonder if we're entering this kind of phase now of like less handholdy game design, maybe in a kind of backlash to a lot of AAA blockbusters that do just tell you where to go all the time with endless map markers. That sounds a little bit like. Um, like Fez or The Witness. Right, right. You know, okay. sort of things where there's like a like a hidden element that it's trying to kind of convey to you somehow, but never explicitly. I would say that's probably probably an apt comparison, ha- having had limited experience of both those games, but I have played mm. them and I kind of know what you're alluding to. But yeah, I would say that's probably fair enough. I think it just really gives it this in uh, this enhanced layer, because when I first saw it, I did just think of it as the cute fox game. Um, yeah. Like my partner was really interested in it based on the visuals and and i was like oh that looks cute and then yeah I, I, like you i heard it was um quite tricky and then i was kind of struggling to get a read on it but then it dropped and it got these um, glowing reviews and so w- way more acclaim than i thought 
I guess it just I just thought it would be like a fine game that would come out and be like, oh yeah, that was nice. And then we kind of move on. Mm. But I do think it might be a masterpiece. Oh, <laughs> from, right. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. From what I've played so far, I, I'm really, really impressed by it because I think like the way it remixes bits of like how 2D Zelda works is really interesting. So I don't have a shield yet. I've been playing for hours. Oh, really? Yeah. I know how to get the shield, but there's an absolute fucker enemy um, guarding this key that opens this house that where the shield is, I'm pretty sure. And I have like... I've struggled to kind of like perfectly understand the kind of like dodge window invisibility window basically. So oh, right. and when this enemy with a giant spear attacks me, I'm just like struggling not to get like one shot by him. And so it's funny because I've made quite a lot of progress elsewhere. I've got like a lot of different items. I've got a, like a magic rod that fires spells, which I feel like I'm not supposed to have before I have the shield. Right. But because, <laughs> because the game has this looser structure, seemingly, at least where I am now, it just means that you can kind of miss things quite easily if you're not paying attention. And so I saw people tweeting about, oh yeah, I'm an hour in now and I've got the shield and the sword. And I was like, well, I got the sword, but the shield's an absolute motherfucker. So <laughs> I find that quite interesting that like something you rely on is so basic in Zelda. Is just like, you know, you have to earn it here. Like, uh, I, I, I quite like that as an approach, you know. It almost sounds a bit like what like Nintendo was trying to go for with the Link to the Past sequel. What's it, a Link, Link Between, Between Worlds. Worlds. Yeah. That's sort of, sort of something that's like the whole world's at your disposal. It, and it's very freeform within that, in theory. Um, yeah, but, for sure. But a more sort of successful or maybe like bolder version of that that isn't because the thing with nintendo is they fundamentally want you to get through it and have a good time so they'll inevitably come a moment where they basically push you towards something or give you something outright but the idea of a game that doesn't do that within a similar space that's super super cool yeah it's not it doesn't really have those gentle touches which is funny because it might seem counter to like how it how it's presented visually um but it is quite like it is quite enigmatic it's like um it doesn't have any kind of in-game text that tells you the story. Like the, the manual tells you a little bit about who your character is, but not much. And then right. um, there's little kind of dialogue-free cutscene bits that tell you more about your character and why he's on this location that I assume is an island. It feels a bit a bit Link's Awakening, Link's Awakening like in in some respects, I would right. say. Um, in terms of like how when you start, like the map seems to be um, going up and up and up, like more and more of a raised surface, which reminds me of the, you know the island in Link's Awakening. Um, there are certainly like bits of the world you can't reach early on because that are dependent on different powers. I can see different types of blocks that I can't use yet, but I imagine you could if you had a certain jump ability or right, yeah, like that kind of thing. So you can see the kind of um, you can see where you could later return to a location in that Zeldery way and get somewhere new, but it's I think it's just the fact that the critical path is not that obvious to you that it does come down to you as a player to figure out exactly where to go and what to do and that. The manual is is such a crucial piece of information, such a mm. crucial piece of how you play. That I think it's just a, a a really good way to catch the feeling of discovery and learning in a game. Like it's just, I, yeah, it's bold, but it works really, really well. So oh, that sounds great. It is. I think it's legit. <laughs> I think it's like amazing. I really like. It's not very often that I'll just play four hours of a game in a row like that. But yeah, it is so, so good. And it looks fantastic. The music is amazing as well. Um, music, weirdly, a bit more Final Fantasy-like to me. But um, Right. In, yeah. in the demo that I played, there was definitely like a Dark Souls-y currency that you lost on death. Yeah. Um, 
what's what's all that about? Is that like is that actually a crucial part? Because I never really got worked out what that was for. This is another really interesting thing, right? So I had these. Well, let's where to start. So I've been um, collecting this currency. Like you say, you, you gather quite a lot of it. If you die. I think you lose around 30 of it or something like that. Maybe the amount varies depending on what enemy kills you, but you don't lose all of your money. You just lose okay. some of it, um, which is preferred to me um, because mm. otherwise it's a, it's, a, it's a faff and you can sometimes die in some nightmarish locations. So retrieving your uh, money is not that easy. Um, in terms of what you can spend it on, right? So there's a lot of hidden passageways in this game. Like, because it's isometric, you'll see like a little corner that sort of juts off and you'll go around a corner and... Hey, if you go down that corner, you go along this long, dark path, and at the end of it, there is this vendor, this kind of giant, weird, ghostly fox thing that's like, do you want to buy some bombs or whatever? And so <laughs> that's one way you can spend your money. But the other is, it has, in terms of like um, the manual and how the information is presented to you as a player, or even just like how you as a player can experiment, because the menus don't tell you everything either it's got a lot of this kind of like fictional language in it you'll see items where you don't know what the use is and i was next to um a f uh, next to one of the save points and i clicked on this there's like a right hand pane of items i didn't know what they did i just clicked on them and like um a little a, a little kind of like uh money cost came up and i spent it and then i got like extra hp off the back of it so that's obviously the upgrade system and you as a player have to work out how your own upgrade system works essentially um huh which is really interesting in itself. So I spent a load of gold like upgrading my health and um, I think my stamina as well. So yeah, that, that's that's the kind of stuff you can spend your money on basically. But it's just, it's not like there's like one, a place called shop and you just go there and buy right. like, arrows, bombs or um, have a little go trying to catch a little Yoshi doll. It's not that kind of um, <laughs> currency. But um, yeah, yeah, quite interesting. I don't know if that sounds like your sort of thing or yeah, whether it would just annoy you, but yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I read... Um... I read Chris Donlan's glowing Eurogamer review where he gave it an essential. And the only thing that kind of slightly kind of, well, I was like, is this entirely for me? Whereas, you know, he was like, oh, it's like the best Zelda linked to the past. And I was like, oh, okay, if, you know, if, it, if it's really speaking more to the kind of the retro Zelda-y heads, because, you know, how I feel about, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not as super into the top-down Zeldas anymore. Like, I've kind of... You know, I'm, I'm much more into the sort of 3D stuff. I thought, or well, maybe this is this is speaking, you know, purely on a nostalgia kind of note. But it actually sounds like it's doing some pretty um, forward-thinking, or certainly different-thinking approaches to some quite well-trodden ground. So, yeah, I've got to, for, I've got to give this a go. Yeah, for sure. I thought that, like you, I thought oh, I've kind of had my sort of like feel of 2D Zelda games now. Um, there's a few yeah. riffs on them out there. But um, this is like a much fresher perspective. If anything, I'm more down on the Dark Souls stuff. Where I'm like, I I, I was I kind of actually I sat there and I was like, I cannot believe just how much Dark Souls has like influenced everything in games. Like it's just everywhere. Like even yeah. in this like uh, cute little fox game. If this was a game made in a world without Dark Souls, you would imagine the game looks quite different, you know. Um, mm. But um, that's the stuff. I'm, I'm slightly more down on that because sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, back in this location, I have to kind of go over there and get this. Like that sort of thing, I'm not as into. But um, mm. as a completely fresh take on Zelda, like I say, the thing that I get most excited about is the way information is shared to you as a player, or how you're encouraged to, you know, figure out how to do it yourself, and how you can be rewarded for that or punished for it. And I think that's just really interesting. Um, contemporary approach to this kind of uh um yeah well-trodden ground like you say so yeah. yeah 
Tunic Matthew, very good. That's uh, great. And just on Game Pass, and just go play it for your eight quid a month or whatever. Thank you very so, much. Yep. Thank you very much, Uncle Microsoft. <laughs> Uh, so what's your next game, Matthew? Talk a little bit about Kirby. Yeah. I think we still plan to do a Kirby episode. I don't want to blow it wide open. This is like a long gesta- uh, gestating Matthew Castle project, this. This is like the um, uh, Napoleon film that Kubrick didn't make. It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, you know, Matthew's white whale. He will do a Kirby episode, but it's just been pushed back a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, will, there will be a Kirby episode. Well, I'm, you know, from the perspective of that, I'm kind of late coming to Kirby, or I didn't really appreciate it. Um, when I was younger, which is ironic because it's arguably the younger person's platformer. And now I kind of enjoy the sort of madness behind it. So, yeah, this is the 3D new Kirby for Switch, uh, Kirby in the Forgotten Land, I think it's called. I keep getting its name confused. Really, the big question, I think, with any Kirby game is like a question of escalation. Like, they're very simple games, but within that, they tend to go sort of batshit crazy, both in terms of story and in terms of, like, powers. Like, the powers get bigger and bigger. The sort of power curve... You know, Kirby's not really interested in in kind of difficulty curve. It just gets more and more hyper as each game goes on and then ends sort of spectacularly. And really, the, the question I'm interested in with any new Kirby game is just, like, how does it sort of adhere to that? Does it Does it grow sufficiently? And... This one, this one actually does a pretty good job of it. I mean, there's, there's sort of two sides to it. You've got these possessions where Kirby stretches himself over objects, which everyone's obviously memeing away because, like, the Kirby becomes a car and all that. And those those things are sort of fine. There's there's only a handful of those transformations, and like once you've seen them once, you've kind of seen what they can do. And you know, they're they're kind of wheeled out a couple of times in slightly like madder levels and things but i would actually say what's more interesting is is the the base kind of kirby transformations the kind of copy abilities which is where you suck in enemies and then take their powers because those each have like various upgrades where you kind of like redesign them into more powerful versions you know they transform like once and you're like oh that's cool like every single one of these has got like a, a hyper version which is a bit crazier but then it kind of goes beyond that and it's that escalation that i really really like in this game so like just from an art design it takes these abilities and just keeps making them bigger and bigger and keeps adding like weird wrinkles to them so by the end they're actually quite i wouldn't say they're complicated but they've they've got like deeper move sets than they first appear and that's super satisfying like seeing these kind of mad quirks emerge out of it and like from an art perspective you know what starts as a simple sword attack and then it sort of gets turned into like a giant sword and then there's there's some other kind of hidden unlockable stuff this game's a bit of a fucking nightmare to talk about because of like embargoes and ndas i know the (laughs) game's out but like you don't want to sort of spoil all the good stuff um and because of that escalation the good stuff is like all at the end (laughs) (laughs) okay interesting um yeah i suppose the the challenge aspect is kind of something i was you know i've always kind of thought about with kirby is like oh does this make it a bit too soft but the level of imagination shown in all the marketing materials like all the trailers and stuff makes it seem like it's got that almost mario like level of kind of like oh look at this crazy stuff and amazing interesting level design does it it's 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 not quite there like the actual the levels themselves are quite basic platforming challenges you know it's like slow moving platforms and spike pits and you know spiky rollers you have to jump over it you know it's 
it's kind of quite familiar Kirby fare. And what's interesting is that it's in 3D. I, I wouldn't say like the levels get too crazy, though the end game content is quite good in this game. Like there, there is a sort of hidden tier of slightly madder stuff where you're like, oh, I'd play a whole game of this, you know? You know, a bit like how in uh, Mario 3D World, like, you do all the levels, and then there's, like, another campaign which kind of remixes everything into kind of... And that's where it kind of bears its teeth a bit more. Like, there's sort of a Kirby version of that, but, like, Kirby never properly bears its teeth. Like, I'm not saying there's, like, a secret super hard tier to this but there is there's definitely a run of 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 um stages within the game where it just sort of sort of goes a bit bananas and it it starts like mixing like the transformations together in interesting ways or you really have to like lean into those those like power abilities that i said it's like you know it'll say you know okay well this this bit of the level is going to really push like your mastery of like ice kirby and then you're going to turn into a car for like a two mad minutes and then you're gonna be like digging kirby and we're gonna have some mad digging puzzles and you're like oh this energy is great like this kind of like marathon of like madness that game's a nine out of ten i think because it only gets there towards the end it's like a little too sedate for the meat of it and also there are so many transformations and abilities that they each only really get a couple of moments to like truly shine i think mario explores like in odyssey for example mario explores those transformations a lot more fully than kirby explores any of his transformations but then it is aimed at i would say at a younger gamer and as like a gateway drug it's so polished you know it's so charming like the idea of like i think a you know five six year old or whatever could probably get into 3d platforming through this and they're treated with such respect, like they've really put on a show for the younger gamers, mm. which not many people do. I think if, if this was your first game, you'd leave this going, games are going to be amazing. Like, I am so looking forward to playing more games like this. And you almost want to tell those kids, like, not all games end as well as this. You know, not all games will go this far to kind of please you. So it's this sort of weird thing where I'm like almost more excited for like other people who it's maybe more suited to playing it than necessarily for myself that makes sense yeah i'm gonna see your rationale there but not in a, yeah i don't know not in a condescending way like oh it's good for kids because actually most stuff people say is good for kids is crap and boring and i will say without sp- spoiling what it is you know for people who played the 3ds games and loved like just how hard they went in the final like 10 minutes mm. this one definitely does that too you won't think kirby's getting there like right up until the end i was like oh i don't think this is going to end big like i can't really see how this could end big and then it really did. And I was like, I show Catherine, I was like, look at this, this is so wild. Like, how dumb is it that this silly little kind of friendly platformer just just really, like, puts the sort of gas pedal down in the final 10 minutes? Well, <laughs> it's, like, almost worth the admission for that, I'd say. Wow, okay, interesting. Okay, well, that's... I've asked for this for my birthday from my partner. I thought that would be a nice game to play. So, uh, Oh, yeah, it could pass yeah. the pad one as well. Well, you can play yeah. co-op, so... Uh, oh you can play co-op yeah you have like a little waddle d comes along oh okay cool yeah actually um yeah that that'll be spot on so uh yeah i'm excited about that that's yeah. good yeah yeah uh, that was um the other question i was going to ask actually was um what's the rationale for it being post-apocalyptic this game matthew yeah he just gets pulled through a vortex into like what is sort of our world without much explanation i again it's part of the mad ending to kind of spoil like 
it sort of goes a bit xenobladey. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Which, you, again, you wouldn't really expect. Kirby games, you play most of them, and, like, at the end of each level, you fight, like, a giant tree with a face or, like, a big monkey. But then you always get to the last boss, and then it starts talking, like, the most convoluted, like, Nomura Final Fantasy villain bullshit you've ever heard, right. where you're always like, oh, okay, what's this? <laughs> um, okay. It's very odd. Like they they go they kind of go hard sci-fi at the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, but what you're saying is, there's no sequence where Kirby shanks someone playing Hotline Miami Two on PS Vita. <laughs> no, there is not. Um, it's it's not that. <laughs> okay, it is definitely not The Last of Us uh, of Kirby games. Um, <laughs> the, the, I would love to read, and hopefully they'll do like a Nintendo Ask style interview because I'd love to hear the justification behind this particular art style because it it's kind of it's pretty inexplicable. It's all the silly Kirby enemies, like the little bomb throwing guys and like the dogs and. You you know all, all the quite kind of abstract characters from the traditional Kirby games, except they're in like you know what looks like the the refinery from the start of Final Fantasy Seven. <laughs> what, what like the Mako reactor? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is pretty uh, pretty wild. Yeah, because yeah. the background's sort of semi photorealistic, but then it's full of like star blocks and like floating plates of curry for you to eat and things. <laughs> Oh, okay, interesting. That is uh, kind of bizarre. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. it's odd. <laughs> it's a uh, really odd game. <laughs> uh, I dig that. That sounds good. That's like you've got me even more sold on it at the end. Oh, there. yeah. That's, uh, well, that's it. Yeah, if you want, like, it's basically the art style of The Last of Us, except there are, like, giant floating donuts everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Which I think I, Naughty Dog were going to go for. Yeah, the follow-up to uh, Last of Us Part 3, a little bit lighter. Um, yeah, a <laughs> little bit jollier. Um, okay, good stuff, Matthew. I will definitely play that. I'm excited to uh, to, to see to see all this hard sci-fi shit at the end. That's um, I mean, Yeah, I don't want to over-egg it, but it's... It's harder sci-fi shit than you're expecting, that's for sure. Kirby just sees like a, a monolith that makes kind of like um, opera sounds and then like um, goes through a stargate and uh, uh, rapidly ages, um, dies there, in bed. There, there may be a flesh monstrosity involved. <laughs> oh, wow. So it turns into inside at the end. Amazing. Well, you'll see. <laughs> okay. Wow. What a tease. Like, uh, how can you at home want to uh, not want to play this game now? Listen to that. Um, that's exciting. Um, my next um, game, Matthew, is um, an older pick. I've been playing a fuck ton of Monster Train on the Switch. Now, oh, right. do you know this game? I played like an hour and a half of it to kind of get my head around to see what the deal was. And I was like, oh, it's a cardy game and I'm not very good at these. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I previously bought um, Slay the Spire on Switch because I think it's back when I was on PC Gamer. Um, Evan, the editor-in-chief, was massively into like this emerging deck builder genre which sort of like has popped up in the last five years or so they're like single player card games basically Mm. where it's like you know um you play a bunch of uh, cards against like a computer and then there's kind of like a uh, a slightly rpg structure where you're kind of going up this map and you're choosing which of two paths you want to go down and there'll be little story moments and you'll get currency to spend and new powers and that sort of thing. And it's kind of roguelike uh, structure so you can see if you can get to the end or not. Um, Inscription was also a kind of riff on this. At least the first part of Inscription was. So it's become a like fairly familiar genre, I would say. And it's um, not an uninteresting one. I don't know if Darkest Dungeon's like this as well. I think it maybe is, but I've not played that. So um, I can't say. But Monster Train is the one that I've got massively into because I played Slay the Spy and I found it way too hard for me. It was just like um depleted, 
kind of like diseased, battered man by the end of it. And it didn't feel super empowering. <laughs> this game, I think, is a lot gentler because within about within a, like a half a day of playing it, you'll probably have finished a complete run or what you think is a complete run. And actually, there is like a final area you can only reach by um, fulfilling a certain set of parameters. And that's how you properly finish it. But I think this really works in terms of structure. So I'll just explain what the game is. Um, mm. You pick this kind of like like a base class, like um, a, a certain uh, which will kind of like define the style of cards. A bit like picking an element in the Pokemon card game, I guess. I'm afraid I don't have loads of trading card game knowledge to draw upon here. Right. But um, let's say you pick these fiery demon guys, right? And then there'll be like a secondary card class you can pick too, and you pick these green um, sort of like healing um, people. So you've got a mix of like. Um, brutality um, and kind of like uh, you know sort of melee attacks and then also you can um, do some healing some support um, support class stuff as well and basically you're in this train going to hell and you're just trying to sort of get there before the angels can stop you so it's a little bit uh, goth in that respect (laughs) what this basically comes down to is you kind of navigating these layers getting closer and closer to hell trying to sort of like um stop your trains kind of the fire burning at the center of your train from going out um after it takes too much damage from these um angel enemies that come and attack you and you do this by um deploying cards uh like friendly cards on these um floors of the train um to try and stop the enemies um uh, from progressing up the floors to the fire to destroy the fire and um, end your game so basically yeah this comes down to like you know you play you play powerful enemies on the bottom floor so you can try and stop the enemies as they come in from um from progressing upwards but then you have to strategically kind of like um distribute the different cards across the different floors to make sure that if they get past your first wave of enemies you can at least take them down on the second floor Mm. and um the kind of like what they give you in terms of toolbox to help with this is like um you'll have some enemies who have like stacking abilities they're like by placing this card here you'll double the aggression of different enemies or or different um, friendly cards on this floor so their attack will go up and then um you'll basically it becomes like this kind of exciting maths game where it's like (laughs) What can I play to make the most exciting explosive numbers to stop these enemies as they arrive on the train? And like when you see it all pop off, it's really, really satisfying. Slotted into this RPG like structure where you'll do a battle, then it'll be like, um, you can you've got two paths here. Do you want to um go buy um some new kind of like magic based cards, or do you want to upgrade an existing card, or do you want to um get rid of a card from your deck because it's not very powerful and you're sick of seeing it in your hand whenever a new turn comes mm. up? This kind of thing. Quite hard to make it sound exciting on a podcast, I'll be honest. But it, yeah, how much stuff like actually happens in the ra- like? You're not just placing this stuff at the sort of start of the round, right? It's not just like a tower defense. It's got some similarities to that, but how do you mean exactly? Well, like, uh, so you're you're saying like you've got this this hand of cards and you're trying to calculate how to do as much damage as possible. But are, are you making like live decisions like in the, in the game based on like what happens or well it is turn based so you do have right. to wait for your next turn before you can oh, react okay sorry yeah. i missed that <laughs> no that's fine that's fine like it, yeah like it's a turn based game so you you you'll see the enemies you'll deploy them it goes um you know they'll they always attack first unless right. you unless you've yeah, got sorry, a... in, my, in my head i because I, I have i despite what it sounds like i have actually i have actually played this and in my head <laughs> Yeah, I just remembered placing a lot of stuff, but I couldn't remember if you just sort of sat back and watched out whether you were screwed or not. I forgot it had that more turn-based thing. Plus, it is like it is tactical. So 
they're kind of like the enemies are sort of like all lined up and then you'll always attack the enemy at the front unless you've got a, a like let's say one of your cards will say oh we'll let you select which enemy you attack from um the row of three and so what that basically comes down to is let's say they've put a super defensive um card at the front um, to take loads of, to absorb loads of damage but at the back there's an enemy who can do a absolute fuck ton of damage and you do not want him going up a floor. Right. Um, you might be at a place like, um, let's say that like this deadly like plant card that will drag an enemy forward from the back to the front. So when all of your cards attack, you'll take out the enemy with the more powerful attack ability right, rather than right. the one with the defense. So um, there's loads of different maneuvers you can do like that, basically. So it's not just you put the card down and watch it all pop off. Yeah. It's like all these cards have different abilities and it's like how do i best combine these abilities to make the um the most satisfying maths happen and and like it is like um it is really really exciting i think partly because the visual effects are really nice and it um it kind of zips along at a a good pace it is quite empowering as well like it doesn't feel like it's always battering you do you start every run at like zero or is there any like permanent upgrades or permanent stuff you keep you do get new cards that you um unlock as you level up um so they the the each of these kind of classes has like a different deck basically and you're adding mm. to that deck as you upgrade so you do have more cards to draw upon yeah and so your um your tactical kind of like armory is basically growing as you play um oh, that's good. so even though you have to start again it doesn't um always feel that painful i think as well what, what's really interesting is that the optional final area i've not reached it yet because it's actually like it requires you to take on this currency that sends the difficulty up um, and you have to get the, the you have to take on as um, I think like up to a hundred of this currency, and by doing that you unlock the final bit. But if you want to chicken out, you can just not take the final currency, wrap up your run, and then just like be like, oh yeah, I did it, I finished the game. <laughs> and I think that's why I've kept playing because it doesn't kick your ass too much. It's like, well, we'll let you scale this to have the experience you want, but you'll always feel empowered. Um, mm. You can just watch the uh, monsters batter each other on the train and have a good time. And that's why I like this. I think it's like one of the most perfect Switch games I've played as well. Um, oh. If you want, if people want to play it at home, it is on Game Pass. You probably heard about this game anyway. It was pretty acclaimed. Play it on Game Pass. But then I um, I saw that the Switch version was discounted. And I thought I must have the Switch version. So um, I, I grabbed it on there. And it's spot on for that. Comes with all the DLC as well. So... Oh, it's so good, Matthew. It's so so good. Um, that's like what been one of my big gaming addictions this year. So, uh, yeah. nice. Um, so what's next up for you? Did we want to talk some Elden Ring? Yeah, okay. Because I think we have got some interesting updates for the listeners here. I don't know how how much more you've been playing. Like, I I know that I've been sort of bombarded with it, and I kind of I've taken to judging myself against where social media seems to be at with it now. Right. Because for a long time, you know, all the talk was just, oh, God, Margit and Godric, what a nightmare, what a nightmare. And it was like, oh, OK. And then I saw a wave of, like, people hitting the boss of the magic school and complaining about that. But then it seemed to go quiet. And I'm seeing a lot of people talk about stuff I just haven't got to. And I don't know if it's the end of the game or not. But everything sounds quite end gamey from people's chat. So I don't know if everyone's to skip to the end or what. I'm currently stuck this this happened one time before when i got out of the first area um in the kind of south and then headed west i felt like there was a noticeable jump up in difficulty and it took me a while to get my footholding but once i had it i could sort of do most of the stuff in that area or enough of the stuff in the area that i did like the next big dungeon with the boss and i did like the smaller dungeon in the area with the boss and was feeling pretty good about myself but i'm now back at the stage where i'm trying to push into a new region and I'm finding it very difficult, so I'm kind of heading east into the 
sort of decayed lands. I can't remember what it's called. Is it Kaled? Yeah, that's right. I mean, tonally, it's way more oppressive than what had come before, which is kind of amazing that, it, 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 you know, it was already pretty oppressive. It wasn't Kirby in the Forgotten Land um, <laughs> up until now. But it's kind of like, you remember that horrible poison sort of swamp? Well, how about this land, which, like, everyone's got the plague? <laughs> and you're like, great. <laughs> I don't know how much you've kind of gone into this area, but it's patrolled by these, like, giant dogs and giant birds. Yeah. But, like, yeah, that... really scraggly-looking things. They look like kind of um, cursed puppets, I think. <laughs> they're, like, sort of tatty. You can almost see, like, the skeletons underneath them. I think they're, they're quite bloodborne in my head. The kind of ascetic of them is a bit more like decay and rot and plague and illness. Maybe that's why I'm making that association. But I'm just finding them as the common enemy. I think that's what's making it so hard to get a foothold, because, like, basically any enemy I encounter is going to really kick my ass and there's no easy wins which you do rely on in that game like in most areas there's something where you're like i'm you know i have a pretty good feel for this particular enemy type or this particular cluster of enemies i can beast them again and again maybe do a bit of grinding psychologically i can feel better about myself (laughs) because i know there's a place i can go to and kind of win for a bit and i've just found nothing like that in this area like, everything kills me. Everything is like a fight to the death and leaves me so kind of broken if I do win that I'm I'm never in the mood to go and repeat it. Right. I have felt this a couple of times before, like I said, when I went into the other area. If, if anything is going to stop me from, like, making progress and playing it, it is that feeling of, ah, uh, I've not had a win in long enough. And the wins in older areas don't really cut do it for me anymore because the runes they give me are too low. Like, I'd have to grind them so much to make progress that it feels like... Not cheating, but it almost feels scummy to go back and use this powerful character on this place. I just can't find where this character's meant to be in the world, is, is what I'm getting at, I guess. Right, right, yeah. So, um, Kaelid, actually, is the location I thought was an endgame location in the, that episode we recorded. Right. Um, <laughs> and then some listeners in the Discord were like, as Samuel learned yet, yeah, that that wasn't even close to the endgame. And I was like, uh, yeah. That's the uh, tutorial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, um, I, because I, I got teleported there... I was completely freaked out by it because you start in these mines, you work your way out, and then there's like this blood red sky, <laughs> and then like um, there's a giant dragon off to your left, and then some other motherfucker off to the right, and then um, and then like this black rider came after me, and I thought <laughs> I'm being chased by an actual Nazgul in Mordor, and this is like <laughs> this is rad, but also really scary because it's going to kill me in one hit. Um, but I did actually explore the whole place. Like, I actually went around and found all the um, points of grace. And I thought, well, one day I'll come back here and I'll have a foothold of, like, where to go oh, and stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I just, I stayed alive. Just, you know, Torrid obviously can just move away from all the enemies. That's the saving grace in this game is that, like, that horse will save you, save your skin so many times. You can just kind of stay alive even when it's, like, out of your league in terms of difficulty. But I feel like if I get off the horse in that area, I'm doomed, like, wherever. Like, <laughs> I've got to be on that horse or it's death. Right, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That sounds like then there's quite a big, like, difficulty jump between Evil Hogwarts and um, Kaelid, like, as locations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. But, but to the point where I'm like, is this right? Because there has been, like, there is a... I think there is a correct order to things in that game, and there is a sense of, like, progression of, of difficulty. And But the, the leap here, I'm just like, am I, you know... Am I really meant to be riding past all this stuff? Like, is that the correct answer? That doesn't feel right. Like, it feels like I'm not engaging with anything. Right. Which, that can't be. That can't be right. Unless I'm just, like, my particular build. 
very boring strength character was well suited to like decking wizards in the magic swamp and here maybe like ranged magic would be better and that's how it's balancing itself like certain things are going to do better in certain areas I don't know, but it's I haven't I haven't played it for a while, I must admit. Being completely honest, I have hit a wall with it as well. And I think it was I think honestly, the social media factor is kind of a thing. Like it's a bit there's a bit of there's like a suffocating amount of chatter around it and like I know people now have just gone ahead and finished it and stuff and I think I get this a game sometimes. I obviously I threw twenty four hours at it in like seven days. That's a lot of for me yeah. that's a lot like I, I don't always play games in that fashion i'm a bit more of a play one or two hours of a game person mm. and but this was like you know oh god i've um i got so into it and then i kind of just needed to cool off a little bit and now i've been kind of poking at it but it's like it's not completely clicking in the way that it was like it's definitely still kind of you know i, fi- I find it majestic and i'm excited to finish it eventually <laughs> i might just need to mute elden ring on twitter which is a tragedy because there's some great memes out there matthew but like <laughs> um what can you do um so yeah i think that has weighed on me a little bit it's like oh i, I kind of skipped a week uh and then i feel like i'm quite behind now and i'm not mm. in a mad rush to catch up you know so yeah. yeah, I kind of get it, buddy. It's not just you, you know. Oh, good. I feel, yeah. I feel, yeah, I feel bad because, well, not that bad, like disappointed because I was on such a roll with it, and it was like, yes, I've, this is clicked. I can do this. This is the one I'm going to do. This is the one I'm going to do. And now I'm less sure of it, but I'm sure I'll pick it up again. It doesn't help that I've also had to like review Ghostwire and and um, Kirby. Going from Elden Ring to Kirby is like wild. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it is the exact opposite. There is no game on Earth more different from Elden Ring than a game where, like, you know, Kirby can inhale a vending machine. <laughs> that is pretty different, yeah. Um, Matthew, I think there's someone at my door. I'm just going to go grab it. Hang oh, on. Yeah. Um, this is where you're like, oh, shit, it's the Black Rider from Kaelid. <laughs> he's at my door. Fuck. <laughs> oh, dear. He found me. I thought I'd gotten away, but... Oh, no. he, uh... <laughs> How predictable he managed to transition from the game to the real world. He's like, where's your horse now, motherfucker? <laughs> Much like Kirby, he has found his way out of the Sorry. video game and into our world. Um, that's where they've got something in common, Matthew. Um, I, I've got to ask, um, for the benefit of our listeners, because uh, you obviously have like a, a kind of a, a, a very cool day job, but like you fitting these games in like personal life wise how are you kind of finding doing this sort of freelance alongside it because those are some quite chunky games you're playing at the same time i've been lucky actually for all the discourse recently about how no one ever has time to review games i had kirby for like a month <laughs> which, oh nice which was amazing so I, i've just been chipping away at it in quite a like organic an hour here and there and it's quite a nice way to play it and yeah ghostwire um, because it's not you know a 20 hours is still a chunk of time but i've had it for like a week or so so i had a couple of weeks with that to kind of chip away at it i'm quite lucky in that you know being married to a games journalist who also has to play lots of games and is very busy with work we're often quite antisocial and we go off and we can spend a week weekend day each just playing something you know respectively so um that's how it works I've just not seen any of the Oscar films. That's what's paid the price this year. Normally, I'm quite on top of my films, but at the, <laughs> at the moment, like, not really. Not even Nightmare Alley? You've seen that piece of shit? Or, have you seen that piece of shit? <laughs> I hate that film. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. That's on Disney Plus now. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've got to own up. I, I may have watched the uh, Ben Affleck erotic thriller. <laughs> <laughs> you were there, like, at midnight, as soon as it unlocked, you were like... <laughs> midnight drop. 
<laughs> was it good? No, it's terrible. Oh, wow, okay. Is it like, I imagine it's not that sexy. Um, it's it's not. Know. It's also very odd that he ended up in a relationship with the actor because they, they, they kind of hate each other in the film. Like, they're not very sexy together. They had not very good chemistry because of the like nature of the story because the nature yeah. of their relationship in the story is like really fucked up. So, yeah, it's quite odd. This is one of those weird pandemic things that happened, you know? Like, yeah, um, I think everyone just got really excited that, like, this incredibly, like, horny film was going to, like, save, like, revitalise the uh, secretly beloved erotic thriller genre of the 80s and early 90s. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't happened. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't help that it got dropped onto, like, Amazon Prime. Like, you know, just out, out of nowhere, really. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, um, R.I.P. <laughs> the erotic thriller. Yeah, we all, we all secretly like those, don't we? Um, <laughs> the first hour of Basic Instinct isn't a complete disaster. Um, What's, well, like, an actual good one? Like, I don't actually think that many of Adrian Lyons' films are that good. Like, no. Unfaithful, Unfaithful is quite a bad film, I think. But Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I quite like Sea of Love, the Al Pacino oh, yeah. film uh, with... Um, Oh, what's her name? We didn't think we'd be talking about this on the podcast, no, to be no, fair. No, we should, no. God, we're, we're not a horny podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not. We're, we're describing them objectively in a very sort of like... Yeah, um, I'm not like hubba, hubba, hubba. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Ellen, Ellen, ba- not Baskin, is it? Ellen? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know you mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Barkin, Barkin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, that's a good film. <laughs> there you go, Sea of Love, um, available on all good um, sort of uh, VOD services now. Um, okay, so the last game we're going to discuss, Matthew, then we'll get to actually quite a fuck turn of listener questions. I think people will list- like those. Also, how funny is it and quaint that we call them reader questions in all of our documents still and like on the <laughs> podcast? Like, that's nice, isn't it? We still think we're in magazines, bless us. Um <laughs> I thought I'd talk about Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy again, because I did talk about this on the podcast previously. It was my, um, I think, like my eighth or ninth choice for Game of the Year um, for 2021. I only got to squeeze in six hours of it before that episode, so I felt like I didn't quite do it justice. Um, I've now, I'm now quite near the end, and I've played like loads more of it, and I have like, um, I have more detailed takes. But the main thing I want to say is, I think this game is Naughty Dog levels of good, like um, almost Whoa. across the board. Um particularly in writing and characterization in terms of like environments and like level types it's occasionally that good not always though Um, it has some more kind of like rote slightly uh less thrilling sci-fi locations sort of like metal interiors and my favorite slightly dull spaceship locations that um aren't all that i would say these are like flashes for the box metal interiors (laughs) slightly dull spaceships (laughs) and those offer a little bit of like filler i guess it is a fucking long game this for what it is which is actually Mm. you know i think something in its favor but to those out there now who have an xbox and game pass or even on pc and game pass it's on there you can just go play this now as part of your subscription which is amazing i would say and i feel like this game has not found the people who it, it should have found. Like, I don't feel like I ever saw the response to this that it really deserved. And I feel mm. like if everyone who played Uncharted played this, they would probably love it. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's the thing. I think, like, in terms of what I said on the podcast previously, I do stand by it. Like, I think it is, like, a better take on these characters than um, the film versions. It's got a bit more substance to them. You spend more time with them, so I think that helps just in terms of, like, you know, understanding them more, and uh, you, you just come to appreciate them over time. And there's so mm. much contextual dialogue in this game that brings them to life. Do you think you need to be big into the Guardians of the Galaxy to dig it? I don't think so. I think you need to at least be open to the idea of what the dynamic of those films is. <laughs> A talking raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you're like if you're not into a talking raccoon don't play this game i would say um <laughs> good advice there um but like if you can if you can tolerate the vague format of look at these wacky people on a spaceship oh look they're they're like a family because they don't have their own kind of family sort of thing um mm. if you can just about get along with that if you can swallow it in any way shape or form i think you'll you you have the capacity to love this game because it has all of the kind of like interplay between characters and attention to detail that you want from you love in those naughty dog games like you love in the sequences in uncharted 4 where you're driving through madagascar or whatever um and like sully sam and drake are just chatting you're like i just fucking love hanging around here this is great fun um Mm. it has that vibe it helps that you have a few locations that are non-combat locations like nowhere which is a location from the film a big kind of blade runnery um outer space location um, with some npcs around that stuff makes the universe feel nice and big it allows it lots of time for nice quiet character moments where you'll see like um drax the big beefy dude who talks very literally just staring into like this kind of like um basically what is a physical ma- manifestation of the end of the universe and talking about grief and stuff and like Ooh. um it does it addresses that really really well and it has like some quite subtly done permutations in terms of the storytelling I missed, I was gutted about this, I missed an entire sequence where you do like karaoke with some alien guy, and I missed it because I pissed off Rocket Raccoon too much and he fucked off in a sequence where he need to be, needed to be there. Um, <laughs> and my partner was telling me about afterwards, he was like, yeah, it's a really strange sequence, you get pulled into this bar and there's this dude there and you do karaoke together. And I was like, oh, no, I fucking missed that. And I was gutted. I was like, I cannot believe that something that good was optional content. So <laughs> it's quite subtle how this stuff's locked away. Matthew, I remember you played it a bit when we chatted about in that Game of the Year episode. Did you manage to get around to finishing it or getting any more of it done? No, it's it's high on my, my to-do list, though. You know, I, I did enjoy the tone of what I played. I wasn't mad about the combat, but like, I feel like that re- kind of isn't really why it exists. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I was into it, and your enthusiasm for it as well, like is um, yeah, like a big a big uh, badge badge of honor for it. So I will I will definitely give it a go. Yeah, I think you will dig it. I think the um other thing is to say that like the combat, it, like you say, is not perfect. Like it's um it, a lot of it is geared around um Peter Quill's like elemental abilities to get so. Um, selecting those and kind of like having various effects around like you know ice um, fire uh, lightning all that stuff Um, and chaining that and using those to kind of like put status effects on enemies and then getting like um, you know the the different characters to combine their abilities it has spectacle but not depth I would say Um, and like it's not it's not perfect Um, but then I don't think like Naughty God Dog Games were perfect at this either so I think it's fine that it kind of cruises by on that and it has these exciting moments where you'll give like a pep talk to all the other guardians and they'll go out there and kick ass and then like some musical play and stuff like that. And it just it's really nicely calibrated around the dynamic of those characters rather than starting first as a combat game, then working backwards, I would say. So those are my takes on Guardians of the Galaxy, Matthew. A lot of people have said this game is good, but I, I still don't think it's enough. I think this game like would be universally adored if more people played it. Um, mm. So I'm surprised there's still not more of a kind of like groundswell of love for it. Um, any thoughts? Maybe there'll be a second wave now it's on Game Pass. Oh, surely. Surely, right. Um, by the way, in the background of this podcast, I just bought an Xbox Series X. They're in stock in Amazon. And I just thought, <laughs> do you know what? I'm going to go play Oh my God. <laughs> what, a, what an exciting live update. Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, someone in our Discord posted that they're in stock on Amazon. Then um, I left it for an hour and thought, well, if they're still in stock in an hour, then I'll get one. And they were, so I thought, 
fucking yes shadows the dam 4k is happening baby um in the background uh, while we're recording this i clip my toenails <laughs> Uh, which is more exciting of those updates only you can decide <laughs> very very different energy <laughs> indeed Matthew, we've got some like um, listener questions here to fire through for the end of the episode. Yeah, I think we can just... Uh, there's quite a few, but I thought we could just power, power through them. I think so, yeah. So I'll read out this first one, yeah? Yeah, go for it. Uh, this is from um, Im... IMGTR63 on Discord. You know who you are, dude. You listen to podcasts every week and you seem like a very nice guy. Hope this isn't too ridiculous a question. I was listening to an old Future Mag podcast, Xbox World. It was the year Wii U was launching and they mentioned a rumour that Nintendo would rename the Wii U before launch. One of the hosts chimed in that a certain Matthew Castle was so confident it wouldn't happen that he claimed he would change his own name to whatever it would be called if it were to happen. Obviously, Nintendo stuck with Wii U. If you had to change your name to a video game console, what would it be? Wow, deep cut Matthew Castle reference there. Um, mm. Matthew, what are your thoughts? What would you change your name to if it was a video game console? I, I mean, most of them just uh, don't sound like names and are very unworkable. Like, if yeah. you call yourself Xbox Series X, it's like a real pain in the ass to like write on forms. Yeah. Um, like, Vita <laughs> is quite what? an easy to say. Like, that sounds like an, it could be a name. I guess it's it rhymes yeah. with Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go with PS as well, surely. You have to be called <laughs> no. first well, name even PS. PS Vita just sounds like you're pretentious and you're putting your initials at the start. You know, <laughs> PS Vita. Right. Hello, I am PS Vita Castle. <laughs> Please, yeah. it's PS Vita. Yeah, like, like PT works. Barnum. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Okay, that's quite a good rationale. Yeah, uh, you could just say, "Oh, what's the Where's the name Vita come from?" You're like, um, "It's uh, Eastern European." Actually, I don't. I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of them sound just like robot names. Like 3DS yeah. is not a good name. Yeah, this is what I was thinking about. It's like, it's quite it's quite tough. I think, like, I would go with Atari Jaguar. Um, <laughs> and, like, but only people can only refer to me as Mr. Jaguar. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, like, oh, there's, a, there's like, a, a family divorce that I don't like to be called my first name, so only refer to me as Mr. Jaguar. And that's what I think I would do. Um, I also debated whether I'd go with like first name Neo, second name Geo. I thought I could make, I could maybe make that work, and then say that Geo is short for like uh, George or something, you know? Um, first name Neo, second name Geo. It's like a shit Bond, James Bond. <laughs> Like the shitter, the shittest, I would argue. Okay, good. Well, we've done that one, Matthew. Um, I hope you're satisfied by the stupid answer there. Do you want to read out the next one? Uh, this is from John Cheatham, again, on Discord. They're all on Discord. Sega decide to spin off one of the Yakuza minigames into a full title and put it on the Switch. Which one would you want it to be, and why? This is controversial, right? But I don't think I've played a single Yakuza minigame I like. Um, and, and I know it's got a lot of them, but that maybe suggests I needed to get deeper into them than I did because I did kind of fire through the story elements more. I thought it might be nice, right? If um, 
Sega did like one of them uh, sort of like uh, old game compilations, but the entire framework was it was Kiyu in a giant arcade. Oh, and yeah. You, and you walked over to the machines to play them. Now, you could still have the games in a long list if you can't be bothered to do that, but I like the idea that he would like stop playing the game, then pass comment on each one. That is like something I would dig. Uh, yeah. What happens if they framed it because they recently shut down that arcade? What happens if it's like the last night of that arcade and it's oh. Kiryu walking around just enjoying, like, remembering the good times? That's fucking rad. And you have, like, basically a massive spread from across Sega history. It's like, yeah, I used to play that back in the 80s when I was, like, yeah. a, a new Yakuza man in Yakuza Zero. Uh, yeah, that'd be rad. Um, but I, I suppose, like, the, I thought you could do the karaoke one as, like, a Persona-style music game. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there, are, there is a... You know, there is the dancing game in, in a... Which I don't think is deep enough to be like a rhythm game in its own right. But you could maybe open it up. I must admit, even though it's a bit shady, I kind of like running the hostess bars in Yakuza 0. <laughs> right. The whole kind of like staff management. Then you've got like the mini game where you're trying to match the right member of staff to the punters and get them to like spend money. And then you have to drop in and you have to sort of um, help them answer questions right so that they kind of you know read the read the room and things like that 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 requires quite a lot of the main yakuza game to work because you also have the stuff where you like recruit them out in the real world and that's probably a bit much but i like how a couple of their big management games i think have the kind of the scale to them to be like quite good standalone games what about the uh <laughs> the um uh mission where you have to protect the uh, fake michael jackson where he's called <laughs> nigel jobson or something he's called, um from like a fake zombies matthew could that be a stretch down to a whole game i, I, I actually like while that quest's funny i kind of hate those missions to find <laughs> the combat anything where i have to do like timed combat in that game quite stressful yeah what about the sexy beetle fighting game <laughs> oh god like the one time i played that i was like no definitely not um yeah i think i start i think like a kind of karaoke and a persona dancing all night style yeah. thing like that would work but otherwise yeah the the themed sega arcade collection i think that would be amazing oh, people would really it. dig that good uh so next one matthew uh from scientologist on discord again if you want to join our discord just go to twitter you'll find it in our profile um, I have a very simple and exciting question. How come Samuel and Matthew seem to prefer their fir- full first names, no Sam and Matt? I don't think either way sounds better or worse, but as a person who lives with a Matthew, uh, a Matt, uh, he's got the, the hue in brackets there. You have to really see it written down to understand <laughs> what I'm talking about. It always catches me hearing the, f- the full name, as if I do that to the one who lives with me, he gets annoyed. Um, so, yeah. Uh, do you have a reason for this, Matthew? Why you like being called Matthew and not Matt? At school, I was in a class with uh, three other Matthews, and they were all Matts. So I've always been a Matthew from that. If people ask, I'll ask Matthew. I don't really care, to be honest. Um, yeah. But if you ask, I'll say Matthew. Yeah, people ask me, and I say I don't mind, and they genuinely don't believe me. So I told this story on um, Twitter the other day, but I just had a, <laughs> a frontier. I had a, like an assertiveness course. Right. And the first thing I was asked by the person running the course was, do you prefer Sam or Samuel? And I went, oh, either one's fine. And there was like a beat and I just went, that's not very assertive, is it? <laughs> oh, and like, God, did he get a laugh? He loved that. He was like, yeah, I, I bowled him away. Um, it was uh, it was great. A great. Um, I felt oh. like I wanted to leave the call at that point. It's that George Costanza thing of like, I'll leave on a laugh and then like <laughs> my reputation will be established. Um, 
So, yeah. <laughs> but I genuinely don't mind. As long as I'm not called Sammy. Obviously, I call myself Big Sammy on this. Only I may call myself that. But I don't have a preference, really. Um, I used to have an art editor on Endgamer who called me Matty. Oh, God. Did well, you... I didn't mind it because I was like, oh, I've been accepted. I've been accepted by at least one member of the team. <laughs> but what if they confuse so... you with that place that does terrible delivered breakfast in Bath, Matthew? That's my kind of concern. Matty's. <laughs> well, I mean, this was way before that existed, so it was safe. But I kind of, I kind of like that effect thing the one i have to watch out for because my brother's an alex but i call him al if i'm ever working with alex's i've i find i slip into calling them al very quickly right. because of my brother which is very informal yeah i work with an owl and an alex so that's Ooh. um yeah that's actually fairly easy to remember but uh mm. yeah it's uh hey that's uh <laughs> i don't really mind samuel I, samuel again was i only write down samuel because there was like three sams in my class much like matthew so i just had to you're the, you're the only Sam, I know who's a Samuel, who who I I call Samuel anyway. Yeah, oh, there you go, very beautiful. And I like calling Matthew Matthew because as people know, I always go Matthew at the start of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's Matt become what it, work. I just don't. Yeah. Fi- I don't look like a Matt. Feels a bit too cool for for who I am. <laughs> yeah, plus I was kind of like wary of people giving you too many bad nicknames as well at future. So I was like, well, I'll just call him Matthew and it'll be fine. Um, so <laughs> did I have bad nicknames? <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, you, you had a few well, people would call you Castle sometimes. So I thought that's a bit familiar. I don't know. <laughs> just like, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting cross on my behalf. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was a very, a very thrilling uh, explanation there. Um, <laughs> is this one of yours to read, Matthew? I think it is. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's a long one. Uh, this is from uh, Sarah Finox on Discord, a question mostly directed at Mr. Basil Pesto, that's me. Apologies for its length, uh, feel free to cut it down. I haven't done that, so full full disclosure, you're about to get a long question. Have you any insight or thoughts on Nintendo's reluctance to offer a dedicated virtual console service in relation to treasured games, games stuck on older consoles and forgotten classics? This obviously comes off the back of their recent announcement. I unearthed... Oh, this was... I don't know what announcement that is. <laughs> This question was from a month ago. Uh, <laughs> was that maybe about the N64 stuff? Maybe. I don't remember. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, well. <laughs> I, unearthed, <laughs> I unearthed my Wii U from storage recently and found I had 10 GBA titles, a few DS games, and had Ocarina of Time and Majora's Unmasked on VC for my Wii. I would love to be able to play these on a current Nintendo console and would gladly purchase them there for 5 to $10. Where does the reticence come from? Nintendo, barring the PS2, seem to have the largest nostalgia factor going in video games and are currently ignoring it for a strange drip-feed subscription service. What are your thoughts? Where do you see this going moving forward? Will Nintendo ever make people happy in relation to how they handle their older titles? I think this is actually in relation to the Wii store closing, Matthew. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. Like, It's weird how like, Nintendo's reputation has changed because I would say for years we celebrated them as people who did have older platforms in mind it definitely like from uh, you know in terms of like did you know ds having a gba slot and we playing gamecube games and things like that you know i think they went from being top of the class to suddenly like painted as villains for not wanting to support an online store forever um i think a lot of stuff is tight you know people seem to just think that nintendo can make like anything happen and they forget that a lot of these games they don't own like the rights to <laughs> you know that a lot of stuff we don't see in virtual console or the switch online service is because it's tied up with dead companies or the licensing has got mad stuff going on with it i think 
the SNES and NES online services are both pretty pretty interesting in terms of the games they offer. Like they have a lot of the classic first party stuff you'd want, but they've also got some like quite mad third party stuff that hasn't been on Virtual Console before. Like it's it's a lot more interesting and niche than people give it credit for. It's not just Virtual Console SNES again. You know, there's there's some quite strange things, which I can't name any of off the top of my head. But whenever I go in there, I'm always like, why the hell is this here and not this thing? And actually, I kind of like that about the, the online service. So I don't necessarily agree that they're, they've, like, forgotten lots of stuff. The problem with Nintendo is, like, they well, it's not a problem. It's, I think it should sort of be admired is that they value their games forever. You know, they think they still have value and they don't want to ever devalue them by just giving away everything for free and which is where I think the drip feed comes from. I don't think the pace of the N64, and I don't think the N64 offering on Switch Online is particularly tasty at the moment. Um, I think they could speed it up and do a lot more. But generally, like, I don't sort of object to a company feeling that their games are valued and that they can still con- sort of control the flow of them that way. Like, that doesn't seem outrageous to me. What I will say is, I feel like they're at the point now where they need to have one unified storefront that stays the same for all of their future hardware in the same way that like it's not like you buy a new pc and valve's like oh we've got to change steam now and none of your games work definitely in the console space i think like xbox has now set the tone for that yeah if it works now it will work forever and that's our commitment either that or you just have to be very frank about it up front every time you buy something the switch says we don't currently have plans uh, for this to be an eternal store <laughs> yeah uh, it's like it's that thing of um as well like you don't know what nintendo's next concept will be like they don't just make consoles they make concepts consoles around concepts so mm. you don't, you never know they might do another like double screen thing or something just kind of like wild and unexpected yeah. so you can't be totally sure that the next thing will just be another handheld that you can play your stuff on you just don't yeah. know um but my preference is that i won't have to buy xenoblade chronicles you know definitive edition again on another system for another 40 quid in like five years like i'm hoping that we're the days of that are behind us but i guess we'll see yeah. um in terms of retro stuff i've got i've got i imagine that that same cycle will continue of them doing it a completely different way each time there's a new console yeah. <laughs> um i don't think that's going to go away anytime soon but um who knows they seem quite committed to this nintendo switch um online expansion pass so uh i'll continue to enjoy that as a member of matthew castle's family um so Next question. Greetings from New York, from Western New York State, hours closer to Niagara Falls and to NYC. My question is, how much do you know about your listenership? You can be damn sure that you're locked up the fans of video games and also unreliably open meat tents demo. But do you have any sense of the geographical reach of the pod or other interesting demographics? Thanks and congrats on the Patreon decision. I'm happy to have a way to help support you both from afar. You represent nearly everything I now know about Bath, UK Games Mags, and Rennies. So thank you for that too, I think. Um, that's from Lucretius on Discord. So I know more about this than Matthew, because I'm yeah. the guy who looks at stats loads, because Matthew's got more to do with his, his life, which is completely fair. Uh, well, that's not true. <laughs> I'm just lazy. <laughs> um, I know quite a lot. So we're primarily UK-based um, audience. We know what apps they use. They seem to listen to other UK games, UK games podcasts too which isn't a massive surprise you always see those in like Spotify algorithm recommendations so mm. I think people a lot of people listen to like the IGN UK podcast or TGS um you know or, sorry TCGS or mm. like you know other bits and pieces they mostly use Pocket Cast, the app which is a very good app for podcasts they um, Spotify and Apple Podcasts um the biggest opportunity for us is like a US audience because when I worked on games 
sites the audience is primarily us and i feel like how can you get a uk games podcast in front of more americans that's kind of something i think about i guess in terms of demographics but matthew those are quite boring answers do you have any thoughts on this i only included this one because i thought oh yeah that, that would be interesting to know more about um yeah i don't think there's anything particularly zany in there but um yeah good to know <laughs> yeah there you go i i could have just asked you in private rather than dragging it into the podcast <laughs> <laughs> well i don't mind i like i like quite like being um uh sort of like transparent with stats around the podcast because it's my data and it's not like um data from companies i work for like yeah. it, I, I quite get quite excited about sharing it so uh yeah <laughs> Um, and it's not is... horrible data. It's nice to be involved with something which actually has like decent sounding data. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, for the time being, anyway. So, um, why don't you read the next one, Matthew? Uh, this is from Necro Bastard on Discord. Pod question, uh, obviously. What would ruin your favourite game series for you? Or if you'd rather not think about that, what has ruined a favourite game series of yours in the past? Yeah, so I've got two answers to this one, Matthew. First up, I thought about Mass Effect Andromeda, which, you know... I- it's rough it's tough to kick, keep kicking this game because it has so much shit from people and it's not <laughs> it's not as bad as people say it is but i would say that that's like an example of like boring side quests rougher writing and characters kind of infiltrated mass effect and that was enough to spoil it i think you realize what a delicate balance the original mass effect games had um but i think in a larger sense frequency of sequels i think is um something that ruins uh franchises so mm. One example I have of this is this is a very specific example, but Onomusha. I was very keen on that on PlayStation 2. Um, but I think it died very early because they squeezed out four main installments and two spin offs inside five years. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it was treated with reverence in the way that like Resident Evil was, for example. Mm. Um, you know, that not that that doesn't have its own kind of like bad spin offs too, it does. But now it's totally dead. And they, I remember like in 2006, there was a slightly naff entry called dawn of dreams that came out and it was kind of ignored and then the series just died after that and i thought it was a real shame because it should have had legs um on amusha so Mm. that's one for me matthew but um yeah so i think that's it frequency of sequels then just like when the execution just dips slightly and you and it doesn't feel the same as it used to those are Mm. my ones how about you i wouldn't say like outright ruined but there was definitely a period where i thought ace attorney was on the ropes a bit after shitikumi wasn't involved but then obviously it came back with uh, spirit of justice which is just such a banger and one of the best ones that i was like okay this team can definitely handle this this series the thing i love about nintendo games broadly is that nintendo kind of do their own things and don't seem to sort of sway to like popular trends like i i would be you know sad if like Nintendo felt the need to like bring in a Dark Souls resource management into Zelda or something, you know, I'd be sad to see Zelda try and copy trends and Nintendo try and copy trends more broadly, um, which they don't do. I wouldn't want to see it like when, when people sort of do like real world crossovers and they get like influences and games or like famous people, you know, like naff celebrities involved with games. I'd be sad if like any of my favorite things did that, like when they kind of pander, to like social media trends that kind of stuff as well i think it's always right. a bit grubby yeah if you do it it just has to be tastefully done like anything and i don't think just jamming a celebrity cameo in there for the sake of it is being done well um mm. so yeah that's kind of a, a, a good good take um last question here matthew from balladeer on discord 
um, who I accused of light mischief uh, frequently in that <laughs> in that um, Discord, which I think is accurate. Uh, hi, gents. <laughs> Hope you're having a good one where one can be day, game, sandwich, or whatever. Question being discussed on the Discord right now. In your experience, do, you, do um, does writing for websites and writing for magazines teach new or upcoming journalists different skills? And if so, what are they? I mean, the big difference is, is one of, like, space and timing. You know, I think people need to be, like, quicker online, but they also don't necessarily have the limitations of writing for the page. I'd say those are probably, like, the defining factors in terms of, like, writing style and what you end up doing. Like, the few times I had to write for online, like, when we went to E3 and they'd be like, you have to write some stuff for, like, the official Nintendo website while you're at E3. That was part of the deal. You know, I was not very good at that. I, I'm not... A, I, I don't write great copy very quickly, you know. I, I'm pleased with my copy, but it does take time. Um, to do like talking about this now seems mad because the idea of like a young and upcoming journalist through print is it just doesn't really happen feasibly the last in-house hires or magazines could have happened (laughs) yeah so i think this depends on what you end up doing um like i can't say that all writers have the same opportunities i did um Mm. but like i uh, on pizza gamer i learned how to pitch advertorial content to publishers like um you know kind of like uh sort of like video series and things like that around major games that are kind of like facebook series and stuff but the idea is editorial driven so they're they're good and not just like you know come up with by people who don't really understand the material um mm. even though there's a you know firm separation of church and state on that stuff um there's um i worked on events of course i worked on like a uk consumer event i learned a lot from doing that um that's probably quite an unusual one for people to work on but i know people at repop do that as well of course like Catherine works on like curating um egx panels and stuff so uh, that's co- that's good experience because that's something you can take into another job and be like hey you know i've um i've done this before and people are like oh they understand what games events are that's good you know um seo social media skills pc gamers uh social media followings are like of millions and millions mm. um to, to be like completely transparent over the years i've gone for a few different community manager jobs and been kind of annoyed i never really got anywhere with them because i felt like m- managing a facebook page with three million likes and scheduling content for the weekend <laughs> and stuff and being conscious of messaging was very close to what a community manager does around a game um but I don't think people necessarily make that leap when they're hiring, at least the you know companies I've been for in the past. It's quite a few years ago now. Um, so yeah, like stuff like that. I think um, I got to turn into a bit of a jack of all trades around that stuff. Like yeah. I wouldn't say like I'm a massive expert at any of that, but I'm like I'm, I'm pretty well versed in all of it. And I think that's mm. what working in publishing gives you is like a quite a broader skill set than you think it is. It's not just I've written for a magazine and now I go write for another magazine. It's like, well, maybe I'll move into copywriting. Maybe I'll like, you know. Oh, is that do... how it's meant to work? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, or like you, Matthew, you have like gone down a path of video editing. You know how to do that now. You didn't know how to do that on your own Endgamer. So like, mm. um, you know, you are an expert at that. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. You edit this podcast much better than I do. Um, this is a Matthew edited episode. And um, the one, they're like, we take it in turns. So um, I guess like the even numbered ones are Matthew episodes. The odd number ones are my episodes. So you can compare and contrast like, different skills there. Um, but Matthew's much better than me. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of my answer to that. Um, I hope that's helpful. But, uh, yeah. So yeah. I didn't mean to be too doom and gloom about magazines also, but... You know, I sometimes find like it's just when I started, it was feasible that you might work for a magazine one day if you're outside. But now it's like just the numbers are not in your favour. <laughs> and on that cheery note, let's end the podcast. So um, 
<laughs> you can follow us at Backpage Pod. You can follow me at Samuel W. Roberts. What are you on uh, social media, Matthew? <laughs> Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. And um, we're going to launch our Patreon on April 1st, I think, barring any disasters. We'll see how it goes. But um, you'll be able to back us at £1 and £5 tiers. £5 will get you an extra podcast a month. If we reach a certain threshold, you'll get a second podcast a month. Um, so that'd be fun you can have up to six or seven pods a month in total from us um, depending on how it goes um, yeah there's uh, lots of unanswered questions there for us to figure out but <laughs> I think it I think it'll be good that's the core offering we're gonna go, we're gonna go with um, so Matthew next week is the Kirby episode and um, I'll see you then it'll be good yeah let's do it <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs>